I'd like to invite you to remain in that attitude of meditation and prayer this morning especially. Because as humans, we have so many things rolling around inside of us, and sometimes we don't make space enough for the hard ones. So I'd like to share a prayer of grief and lamentation with you this morning, just briefly. It seems the rather human and humanist thing to do. This is by Keith Cron. Today and forever I grieve the loss of life. I grieve for the people who died. Yesterday and the day before and last week. I grieve for their families, friends and co-workers. I grieve for those who were there and feel both lucky and guilty that they survived while others died. We have witnessed yet another Tragedy. I grieve for all those directly and indirectly affected by today. I grieve for those who are reminded of their own losses, the parents and families in Newton, Connecticut, Columbine, Colorado, Charleston, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, all those who know someone who has been lost in mass shootings, and feel the emotion of a day that a day like today produces for them. I grieve for those who have died and those who love them who died when we did not pay attention. I grieve for police officers and safety officials who are trained in how to respond to mass shootings. I grieve for workers who must look at and remove the bodies who try and keep the wounded alive, who must tell family members that someone they loved has died or been hurt. I grieve for the first responders who will never forget these days. I grieve for the reporters trying to tell a story while witnessing and listening to horrific details. I grieve for the parents who must explain today to their children. I grieve for parents who wondered if they should have done more when they've seen hatred and anger come from their children. I grieve for the parents who simply turned away or encouraged the hatred and anger. I grieve for the parents who say they didn't see this coming from their children. I grieve for schools that do not have the resources to educate and manage children where they know some children will slip through the cracks. I grieve for those who believe there are sides and lines to be drawn. There are no sides. We all lost this week and yesterday and the day before. We move forward only by laying down our own sort of words and being with one another, of seeing each other's humanity and reminding ourselves that the responsibility to be a human being means remembering we are one human among billions of people on this planet. 
I grieve for a planet that forgets that a leading tenet of every major religion in the world is treat others as you would like to be treated. I grieve for those who will be assumed to be bad people because they are perceived to be like a shooter. I grieve for our country where we could rush to believe that only others have responsibility for today. We must come together for the sake of each other. I grieve for those who will die and those who will lose loved ones in the next shooting and the next and the next and the next and the next until we decide they must stop until we act. I grieve for a country and for a planet where this violence is all too common, all too familiar, all too tragic. I pray that each of us commits to be a little more humane, a little more compassionate, a little more willing to come together to be a part of solution. I pray that we work together to end hatred and superiority. I pray that we decide to become better people today. I pray we never forget. I pledge to remember. I pledge to become that better person. I pledge to be a part of the solution, however many solutions it takes. Amen. Blessed be. Aho. Mumus and the moon. (laughs) I have to begin with some of my very favorite words. And they feel sometimes rather sacred to me. So if you would like to receive them in that way, I invite you to do so. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission. Yes, I am the next generation. To explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. These words, just like that black and white television picture, maybe some similar words. They started out differently. First came across television airwaves in the year 1966. They contain the mission statement, if you will, of one particular vessel in a multi-planet fleet, a united federation of planets from an imagined universe, Star Trek. Not talking about Star Wars. Fight me on it. Two years later, in 1968, the first vessel with human beings in it from Earth orbited Earth's moon. And we humans had our first glimpse of our blue-green planet from space. And in 1969, 50 years ago, a human stepped foot on another planetary body. Our sense of our place, human beings' place in the cosmos, shifted, perhaps. Our sense of agency in shaping both our planet and our cosmos shifted, perhaps. Our sense of possibility and ownership shifted, perhaps. 
but shifting focus to human rather than supernatural agency has a long history, long before that footprint on the moon or the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Epicurus, Epicurus, sorry. In the 8th century BCE, postulated that there was nothing but matter in the world. And if that was true, then the purpose of life was to enjoy it. Now listen carefully to this next part, because he's gotten a bad rap. (laughs) Enjoy that life by living modestly. Right. I went, what? You're kidding. Epicurus? Seeking knowledge and setting limits on yourself and your actions. That does not sound like the Epicurus that later people accused him of being. Pleasure all the time. No, setting limits. Living modestly. This did not leave out where feelings, love, wonder, awe, even thought that left that out kind of. Sorry, I read that again. It left out where feelings, love, wonder, awe, even thoughts might come from. Everything was matter, so. And Protagoras wrote a little bit later that man is the measure of all things. Meaning that there was no absolute truth, that human perspective is the measure. Plato argued that there are eternal forms. Does this sound familiar? The this, no that, no this, no that. Okay. And that morality is not dependent on human perception, that there's some other perfect form of the right way to be in the world. That's not confusing at all, is it? What does a human do with all of that, this way or that way? We keep arguing about it, that's what we do. Centuries later, leaping forward to the 11th century of the Common Era, Erasmus, remember Erasmus? Erasmus asked whether all knowledge came from God. We were assuming God or scripture or from human knowing. Which, which thing? Where does all that come from? He wrestled with questions that occupy Christians and other theologians today. If God is all-powerful and good, why do evil things happen? He also thought it was better to nurture and reason with people who question those doctrines rather than to punish them. Hmm. Thank you, Erasmus, for changing our justice system. Give us a seed there. Renaissance humanism created a bridge from that medieval world to the modern world by returning to that classical Greek humanism. And remember that in a medieval frame, all the focus was on reaching the divine world to come as if there was no hope for this world, so you just had to aim for that next one, where it would all be wonderful. During the Renaissance, Dante wrote of the beauty of earthly and bodily matters. That was different, that there was beauty right here and now, and you could reach out and touch it, and I would say with consent, though. (laughs) 
nature in Dante's writings was worthy of praise and contemplation just in and of itself, not as a product of the creator, but nature on its own terms. Exploration in the natural world and how and perhaps why it functions produced such works as philosopher Francis Bacon's Novum Organum, the beginning of science as we know it, that seeking of understanding of how it all works. Modern skepticism tackled questions about the basis of human knowledge. Did God exist? Rather than seeking to prove that God existed through argument or other means. Is there inherent meaning in the universe, or is it there? David Hume, in the 20th century, wrote, The life of man is no greater of no greater importance to the universe than that of an oyster. That may be my favorite representative quote in the long history of humanism. I'm an oyster. And if you think about it, oysters provide a great service to the waters in which they live. They filter things out, filter out dirt, clean up that water, which may give them a point or two over human beings. (laughs) Plus pearls, you know. This era of modern skepticism of the 18th and 19th century yielded libraries of arguments for and against the existence of God, a God, some supernatural force. But there was one volume in particular that shaped how humans thought of themselves. You may know this one, um, On the Origin of Species, by Charles Darwin, published in 1859. Another one of those seminal moments, perhaps not Mumu's and the Moon, but oh my goodness. Evolution was apparently accomplished without supernatural input. And that human progress and development would therefore be onward and upward forever. We would just get better and better at being human beings and we'd figure it all out because that's how we're meant to go. Here were the seeds of secular humanism as we know it today. But what about religious humanism? Two words that maybe aren't meant to be together. I don't know. Although humanism addressed so many aspects of human existence, again, most humanist philosophies and statements left out those experiences of awe and wonder, didn't wrestle with any acknowledgement of the existence of suffering and evil. And quite frankly, as we were reading these in class, humility, humility was also largely absent. Humans were the answer. To what question, I don't know yet. John Dietrich in the 20th century affirmed the principles of naturalism, that nature was in and out of itself inherently worthy of being looked at and beautiful. Existential humanism, which is a focus on human choices and secular humanism, but understands that these provide the basis for a religious posture made manifest in religious ritual and congregational community. Is that sounding familiar to any of you? Religious humanism and secular humanism as well 
both had strong influence on early Unitarianism and still do today. They are a part of our DNA as a faith movement. I also realize as I identify, when, because in seminary you get asked a lot of what your spiritual path is, over and over, and then you have to explain it, which is getting harder all the time. I identify as a Unitarian Universalist pagan, and then I have to explain what each of those words means. But what I find interesting that a lot of that paganism is informed by early thought on humanism. Because my, my version of paganism, kind of like many versions of Unitarian Universalism, is my relationship with the natural world. It doesn't bring me to a particular deity of a particular pantheon. Many people have that experience. That's not been mine. So I will give thanks to the early humanists who wrote all that stuff down and that we could argue about it still today. I like reason and wonder and facts, and I appreciate those in my own explorations of my faith and where that might take this faith, Unitarian Universalism. But I also want to make room for lamentation and wonder and awe at the complexity of every being on this planet, whether it's a two-footed being, a four-footed being, a no-footed being, a winged creature, a scaled creature, or a tree. I want to make room for all of those things and know that they are equally important to anything I might do or be as I am myself. So I would like to pull that humility piece back in. I want to wrestle with that. And I want to wrestle with it in the light of the stuff that is going on in our world right now. Can we, as human beings, be humble enough to say, we don't know everything. That my experience is not your experience, and both of our experiences are beautiful and valuable. That is hard, because I don't know about the rest of you, but I really like being right. <laughs> I like being told I'm right. I'm working on that. Because so often being wrong leads to something amazing. Hmm. Humility. In the class that I just finished in, at Meadville Lombard, we each did a biography of a humanist type person. And I went through the list. We had a list of people. And I said, I don't know that name. Who is this person? 
Carolyn Porco. Anyone know who that is? I didn't either, so I, I, I Googled her. And she's still alive. She was born in 1953. The thing that caught me, and the reason I began with Star Trek, is, oh God, some humility here. Do you remember in the, when they rebooted the Star Trek franchise and there was another movie out and the whole storyline kind of changed back, was it 2003, I think? There was a moment, there are many moments. It's so exciting. The Enterprise is at warp speed and they have to break and stop and people don't do that because things fall apart when you stop that quickly. There's a moment in the film this. The Enterprise is streaking through all the lights are going on and the crew is really nervous and what are we going to do? Can we do this? Nobody's ever done it before. And of course, it's the Enterprise, so they did it. They come to a stop out of warp and there's a moment where you don't see the ship and you're really worried because you've really invested a lot of yourself in this film at this point. And then suddenly, up from the cloud, boom, it's the Enterprise, all in one piece for a change. It just so happens that that was at the moon of Titan, the moon of Saturn. And uh, Carolyn Porco just so happened to have been the scientific consultant for that film, and she suggested that particular scene. Now, this gets even better because she knew what she was talking about because she was the lead imager person for the uh, Cassini probe that went to Saturn. So, I just, well, I had to find out more about her. Um, It also turns out that not only was she a consultant for that, she was the character consultant for the character of Ellie in the film Contact. Um, based on a book by Carl Sagan, who was one of her mentors. As far as scientists go, she's done TED Talks. She's very media savvy and is great at explaining how things work to a lay audience. She's also brilliant. And she has this way of talking about space and space exploration and outer planets in a way that just just breathtaking. She's also talked and thought a lot about spiritual matters in relating to this kind of thing. In a 2008 interview in the Humanist Journal, She wrote, to me, a spiritual person is someone who seeks the extraordinary in the ordinary. Someone who wants to know the underlying meaning of everything. Someone who looks around them at everyday life and asks, is there a purpose to this? Where is this leading? What lies beyond? And how do I fit into this whole picture? She says, as a young teenager, I asked these questions from the Catholic perspective I was raised with was very earnest about doing this for a period of about six months or a year and found that it did literally nothing for me. I found it completely joyless. And for some of you, that may have been your experience growing up. And you left that place and may have wandered for a while. And then you found something that spoke to you differently. Carolyn Porco found the stars, and the outer planets. 
For me, that thought of studying what is out there mirrors what is studying what is in here sometimes. Close examination, whether it's a microscope or a telescope. Not on a sacred mountain, please. And attention to not just my own journey, but someone else's journey. Because we are all human beings together, ultimately. And the differences, the differences are what makes it all beautiful. The image on your order of service is of Saturn eclipsing the sun of our solar system. It was taken on one particular day, and Carolyn Porco organized the most amazing thing. And I don't remember it, which makes me really sad. In 2013, on this particular day, she sent word around the globe to everyone at a specific time, galactic standard time, to turn and look at the sky and smile. This photograph is a composite of probably 400,000 different images. And I'm not sure you can see it in this very small thing. But down in the right-hand quadrant, nestled between those rings of Saturn, there's a tiny dot. And that is Earth. That's the day the Earth smiled. May we bring both humbleness and wisdom and joy and elation and lamentation and grief and acknowledge all those things on this blue-green planet of ours.